welcome to uh, Beyond Barriers, the latest episode, and tonight's guest. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to introduce my new co-host, uh, Keisha Dietz, and tonight's guest is Larry Cooperman. Larry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jeff. Would it be would it be okay, Jeff, if, if I reveal how how you and I got in contact? Yes, please do. Sure. Um, I uh, I saw Jeff. Um, I saw uh, an episode of W. Kamau Bell's um, United Shades of America, and Jeff was one of the the people featured on there. And as soon as I, I heard your story, Jeff, um, I think it was the very next day that I reached out to you and contacted you via Twitter. Um, and so I just I just want to want to thank you for. Um, for what you have done and for sharing that with the public. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that uh, you were able to tune in and check out the show and, and uh, we're really honored to have you on the program. As uh, we were just talking about before the show started, uh, Larry is an expert in history and, and many, many other things. And uh, we talked uh, quite, uh, quite a bit about different, uh, different things in history. And I, I think we'd like to, we could, I mean, the, the way this program works, if you've seen it at all before, is it's a pretty, flea, pretty free flow of information and conversation. You know, we don't really set it up like a, a strict interview. So anything you'd like to talk about on the program tonight, um, you know, feel free to share. And Acacia, feel free to interject at, at any point. I know you have some questions too for Larry. So um, if we could uh, start on that, is there any uh, historical stuff that you thought would be uh, interesting for the show tonight, Larry? Well, yeah, I, I actually, um, there's, there is a, a primary reason that, that I had asked um, to be on and that I appreciate you, uh, you allowing me this presence. And, and, and that was something that, that has troubled me um, about the American scene today and, and which I, I hope in, in some small measure that, that we can address uh, via, via our communications tonight. Um, everyone knows this, but on October 27th in 2018, um, Robert Gregory Bowers entered the, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Um, he would go on to, to murder 11 people and to wound um, six others. And his, his online posts um, told the reason for that. Um, I'm going to quote directly from him. Um, he was upset at the, um, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society or the HIAS um, saying, highest likes to bring in invaders in to kill our people. Um, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Um, the emphasis is, is mine. It was, it was clear um, in, in his thinking that the, the people in this synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, in the, in the middle of, of, of the United States, were somehow less, less American than, than he was. Um, and if you, if you look at the, at the people themselves, you had Rose Malinger, um, 97 years old, Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, um, Cecil and David Rosenthal, two brothers, 59 and 54, Daniel Stein, 71, um, Richard Godfrey, 65, Joyce Feinberg, 75, Max, uh, Melvin Wax, 88, uh, Bernice and Sylvan Simon, 84 and 86, and Irvin Younger at, at 69. These were people who had lived their entire lives in, in America. How, how, do you, how does somebody think of, of, of them as being less, less American than themselves? And, and I think part of the reason is because when we tell the story of American history, um, we, we pick and choose. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't include everything. So there are things that we tell and that there are things that, that we don't tell. Um, 
and and to my way of thinking, um, some of the things that that we don't tell are are significant and and really define who it is that we are as as Americans. I tell kids all the time, you know, if if you're not interested in history, if you don't understand where we came from and how we got to be where we are now, then you're just not going to have any compass about where we're heading. And, and, and that's just, just it's an obvious thing. I mean, just, you know, so, um, so with that said, um, I, I wanted to, to share what, what I had written to you, Jeff, before. I said, uh, um, American history is like a tapestry. You can, you can pull out each individual thread and, and kind of examine it, but, but that doesn't give you the sense of what the whole is. You have to figure how it, it all meshes together. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a story that, um, that most people aren't aware of. It's absolutely historically authentic. And, you know, I provided links on, on all of this stuff. But it's a story that I think is, is surprising to, um, to most Americans. And the story goes like this. Um, in, in 1790, President George Washington, um, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Governor George Clinton of New York, U.S. Supreme Court Justice um, John Blair from Virginia, and U.S. Congressman um, William Lawton Smith of South Carolina, all took a journey together. And that journey was to the Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, where they would uh, address the congregation. And again, if you're, like, if you're like most Americans, you're kind of going, wait a minute, wait a minute. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson went to a synagogue. I didn't even know there were Jews in America back, back at that time. There were, and there's, there's a backstory about why they came there. Um, on, the, on the surface, one of the things that they were doing um, was, was extending uh, a note of appreciation to the, to the members of the, of the synagogue there. And uh, some portions of it are, are fa fairly famous, but are, are often told without the context. So, so George Washington um, wrote to the congregation after the trip as, as a follow-up and a thank you. It says, um, for happily the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving, uh, giving it on all occasions their effectual support. Um, and so that was, that was a note that, that he wrote to the congregation. But the reason that he was going up there and the reason that, that, that they were um, kind of touring around was to gain support um, for a, a particular um, bill that was, uh, that was before Congress. Um, and that bill was 12 amendments to the Constitution, um, better known as, as the Bill of Rights. And uh, I think most, uh, most people in America today, certainly in, in the year 2020, are, are familiar at least with the Second Amendment, right? The right to bear arms. Um, but, but the Third Amendment is, is, is equally as important. And it says, um, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of, of grievances. Um, to my mind, and again, Jeff, thank you for the introduction that I'm a student of history, but to my mind, that single paragraph sums up much of what America is, is about. That, um, that we're an inclusive place that uh, that the government is here to serve the people, not the other way around. And, and if the people feel that the government is not acting in their interests, 
they have the right to 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 protest and to and to insist that the government follow more closely with their interests and more to the point that people have the right to say and believe what they will and that the press has the right to to cover what, what they will um, those amendments uh, the Bill of Rights would be ratified in 1791 so I guess the the, the stumping for the the support um, was was effective uh, but the uh, the trip to the synagogue took place between in that period between the proposal and the ratification. It took almost two years for uh, for the Congress to agree that that those twelve amendments were were what was needed. Um, so so those amendments took place, and and it was great that that Washington had included the the non-Christian community, the Jewish community of Rhode Island in that. Um, but there was a deeper reason that that Washington took the trip. And uh, to understand why that is, we have to kind of wind back the clock um, from, from 1790 when, when he took that trip to 1740. And in a, in a place called uh, Lesno, Poland, um, a, a child was born um, named Chaim Solomon. Uh, Chaim Solomon was a child of Sephardic Jews. Jeff, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the, the Sephardic Jews or the Sephardim um, were Jews who had lived in the, uh, the Spanish-speaking territories. So they were from Spain and from, from Portugal, um, mostly. And, uh, and also um, Holland, which was a, a Spanish colony at the time. Um, and, and that would come into play later, but, but we don't need to, to look at those details. But So he, uh, his family had been exiled from, from Spain or Portugal, probably during the Inquisition, and had ended up in Poland. Uh, Heim Salomon um, was, a, was a bright young man. He studied mostly commerce, um, but he also learned a variety of languages. So remember I said he was born in Poland. So he grew up speaking Poland, but like, like almost all Jews of that time, he was probably bilingual, probably spoke Hebrew as well. But he added on to that among other languages, German, and then he became fluent in, in English. Um, in 1775, he left Europe uh, to journey to New York to begin a career as a financial broker um, for, for overseas investors. So these were people in Europe that had invested money in the, the new colonies of America that believed in America, and they were sending him over there to kind of be a, a watchman. So again, 1775, that's when our revolution is starting up. Um, he comes to New York. He uh, very quickly joins the Sons of, of Liberty, um, the revolutionary group, and um, and he, he he begins you know he, he begins this career that again I, I encourage people to to look up his biography because this reads like like a like a television drama. Um, so he uh, he gets arrested as a spy, but then the British find out that he knows all these languages, so they say hey we're going to keep you under arrest, but we need you to do something for us. We have these Hessian soldiers that are coming over here to occupy America, but they only speak German. We don't speak German. We need somebody that speaks both, both English and German. So we need you to act as a go-between. And, and he does that, um, but he also uses that position to begin to encourage the Hessian soldiers who are working for the British, I mean, they're foreign mercenaries, he begins encouraging them to defect. Um, and uh, after the Revolutionary War, in fact, a lot of Hessian soldiers did stay in the New York, the New York area. So um, he uses this, this position, you know, he's, he's uh, undermining the British who, who think that, that he's uh, working for them. And eventually he's, he's able to, to escape. Um, 
year later, he's arrested a second time, and this time he's sentenced to death. But again, he somehow manages to, to escape from the clutches of the British. And this time he, he uh, makes his way to Philadelphia and he brings his, his family down there with him. Um, in Philadelphia, Robert Morris is working as uh, the man in charge of the finances for the American Revolution. So when I say the finances, don't just think of it in terms of money. He's the guy that's responsible for buying the weapons, buying the gunpowder, buying the, the, the munitions, you know, buying the cannons. I mean, all of the necessities of war flow through his office, plus buying the food. And this is who, um, this is who Solomon goes to work for. So the first year that he's, he's there, he raises um, $650,000 for the revolutionary cause. Now that's $650,000, you know, in, in that year's equivalent, um, the equivalent today in, in, in uh, um, modern you know, dollars would be he raised $10 billion for the revolution. Um, so he not only is getting money from, from European Jewry who were major contributors to the American revolution, but he also donates every penny that he has to the cause. By uh, August of 1781, you know, the revolution has started in 1777. By, by uh, 1781, George Washington's Continental Army is poised to deliver a critical blow to the British. They have the British on their, on their heels. Um, but there's a problem. Washington's army is out of food, out of uniforms, out of all supplies, and is on the brink of, of mutiny. They're, they're starving. Um, Washington it goes into a, a conference with Robert Morris and is told that there is no funds, no funds left, that, that we're, we're completely out of money. So again, this is something that I tracked down and there are, there are multiple witnesses to this. Um, George Washington's comment is, send for Chaim Solomon. And sure enough, that happens. And somehow, um, by hook or by crook, Solomon is able to raise $20,000 in, 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 in that year's you know, money. And Washington is able to um, feed and arm his troops. They march towards uh, the Battle of Yorktown, which is the, the last battle of the American Revolution. Um, and, and so, you know, here it is, um, in, a, in a very real sense, this Jewish banker that had come over from, from Poland is the guy that saves the American Revolution. In 1785, Solomon dies. Um, his debts, the debts that are owed to him, are never repaid. Um, he dies absolutely penniless. He was buried in an unmarked grave um, at the Mikveh Israel Cemetery in Philadelphia. Um, later on, as, as history began to record what his deeds were, um, two plaques will be, would be erected to, to honor him, and those plaques are, are still there. Um, he'll never live to see it. But the religious freedom that he fought so hard for um, in his life would become a cornerstone of, of George Washington's new, new America. Um, Washington may have had his friend in mind when he journeyed to the Turo Synagogue. Um, was, it, was it a question of, of, of repaying a debt? And, and the reason that I bring this up is that um, there, there are many components to anti-Semitism. There are many, many layers to that. Um, one allegation is a constant uh, all around the world, and that's that the Jewish population of whatever country it is has, has mixed, has dual loyalties, right? We see this in America um, where people are described 
you know, people like Gary Cohn, if you remember him, who was part of Trump's cabinet, um, is described as, as a globalist. The opposite of globalist for this sense is, is an American, right? He's, he, Gary Cohn was loyal to something outside of America, to a bigger picture of the world, and, and you know, wasn't a real American because real Americans can't be Jewish. Um, and it's, it's, it's a funny thing because, because when you look at the history of it, um, in a very real sense, there would be no America without, without the contributions of, of American Jews. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and thank you so much for uh, ex explaining that, um, because this is a lot of history, and especially some of the people that are watching uh, this program, uh, Larry, um, have no idea about this, about this history. And that's why I, I thought it would be so fascinating, fascinating to have you on the program. And I also want to back up just a little bit. And I know I sure. cut, you, cut you off there, but I, I wanted to point something out. It was really... I'm really glad that you named the victims uh, from the Tree of Life Synagogue because so many people know who the, who the murderer was and his name is remembered, which is really terrible and unfortunate, but quite often the victims of these, these type of things uh, are not remembered and it's really important. So I'm so glad that you said all of their names and, and those are the people that really need to be remembered. They didn't do anything, anything wrong and, um, the other, the other thing I wanted to point out too is, is this fascinating history that you're speaking about. It's not something that most of us, um, even as a student of history myself, uh, some of these things that you're talking about, I had never heard of before. And, and some of the viewers uh, and listeners of this program also will have never have heard this. So it's, um, it's, it's really, uh, it's fascinating. It's important. And it shows that and. Uh, I wanted, I wanted to say something as you were talking about how they, a lot of people believe that uh, Jews have dual loyalties and, and uh, this sort of thing. This is something in the, in the National Socialist Movement and in, yeah. in my past, we believed that. And there, we had quotes from George Washington that were anti-Semitic, quotes yeah. from Ben Franklin, you know, these different things. And we never heard those of us in the movement, and I think a lot of Americans in general, not just movement people that had been in the movement, but generally Americans as well don't hear these things. And I think it's incredibly important that they know about these contributions that the Jewish people made um, to the founding of this country, because a lot of people have this bias or this anti this deep-seated yeah. anti-semitism that jews have not contributed to this country that they've done things to undermine the country and here's an example of our founding fathers george washington directly and um just as you explained you know the the revolution the the war for the freedom of america may not have been won without uh the help of these uh, jewish individuals that you mentioned that's incredible absolutely incredible if you want to know um, how deeply our our um, our blood is is part of the American story, um, you only need to look at the base of the Statue of Liberty, perhaps the most iconic symbol of America. Um, give us your hungry, your tired, your poor, your wretched masses yearning to be free. That is from the poem um, New Colossus, that was written by uh, a Sephardic American Jew. Um, uh, Emma Lazarus, 
um, who, who, who won, a, won a contest with that. Um, the poem was actually written to, to raise money for the completion of the Statue of Liberty. So it's, it's, just, one of those, it's just one of those funny things. The, the other ironic thing to talk about is, um, you know, there, there were waves of, of American Jews, uh, there were waves of European Jews coming to America. Um, the, the earliest Jews came to America before it was America. We settled in New Amsterdam back when it was a, a Dutch colony. And, and I mentioned that at one time, um, Spain controlled, the Netherlands controlled Holland. That was a Spanish colony and, and they revolted against, against Spain. Part of that revolt was um, a religious dispute um, between you know, Catholic Spain and, and Protestant Netherlands, right? Um, but because of that, uh, be, be, because of, of that combination of events, many Jews settled in the, in the Netherlands. Um, at one time, the Netherlands had control of, of Brazil. And so the oldest synagogues in this hemisphere, not in the United States, but in this hemisphere in South America, is in Recife in, in Brazil. That's the oldest synagogue on, uh, on the street of the Jews. That's what they called it. I mean, who would have guessed that they'd put the synagogue there, right? Um, um, but uh, those Jews came came over to America, and uh, you know, seven of them came over on the on the first boat from Recife. So they had fled from Spain to Holland, from Holland to Brazil, from Brazil to now New Amsterdam. So these are, are, are clearly refugees. They have been, you know, chased halfway around the world looking for religious freedom. And so the governor of, um, of New Amsterdam um, greets them by imprisoning them all. He throws them into, into prison because he, he did not want to have those people living, living among him, among them. Um, however, he, he had a, um, a critical miscalculation. And I, I just love this part of the story. So um, if you remember from your history, uh, the original settlements in America were not done by nations per se, they were done by corporations. In this case, it was the Dutch West Indies Company was the, was the ones that had settled in the New York area. And that's who Governor Peter Stuyvesant was responsible to. A number of the investors and board members of the West Indies Company were Jewish. So he got a letter from the home office that um, in no uncertain terms, basically said, let my people go. <laughs> and, uh, and that, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the American story. But, but again, the reason that I, I say that, um, by the way, whenever I tell that story um, to a, a Jewish congregation, I always add about, about them you know, being released from prison. The first thing that they did was to sue for the right to um, stand guard duty as, as other citizens were allowed to do. And I always say, even then we were troublemakers. But, that, uh, <laughs> but, but I only do that with a, you know, in a, in a Jewish room. So, um, um, uh, but you know, that, that, was, that was really part of, of, the, uh, of the American experience. And, and for, for Jews, for European Jews who were facing you know, discrimination throughout, throughout Europe, America was our promised land. Um, we came to America be, because of the of the dream of freedom, 
And, um, and that goes back, you know, it, it, it's interesting when they teach you about Columbus's journey. And they say, well, you know, Columbus crossed, this will reveal how old I am, but in 1492, Columbus crossed the ocean blue, right? That was the way it was, it was taught. Well, what they don't explain was that um, in, in 1492, um, the last of the, of the Muslim forces in, in Spanish, in the Spanish peninsula in Iberia were, were conquered by Ferdinand and Isabella, by the, by the soldiers of Ferdinand and Isabella. The last city fell and they immediately began the Inquisition. 1492 is the, is the time that the Inquisition um, started. Um, on, another kind of really unpleasant, um, unpleasant period. Um, just, uh, just for the audience's sake, um, people think that the Inquisition was this terrible thing that happened, but it was fairly brief. I wish I could say it was. The Inquisition lasted 400 years. I mean, it wasn't all the, the terrible Torquemada, you know, torture stuff, but, but it was pretty bad that, that, you know, officially Spain had prejudice, religious prejudice on the books for about 400 years. That said, the Jews of Europe knew that, that, that living in Europe, that only living in Europe was, was unsustainable, that it, it could not be done. And it, we, were, we were, you know, hundreds of years away from, from a Zionist movement, from, from you know, the, the restoration of, of, of Palestine. Um, but, uh, you know, America was, was what we looked at as, um, as the promised land. And if you look at the demographics of the Jewish population, I don't, I don't want to get too far into the weeds in this, but, but Jews have the same issues that, that other people do. It's, it's a little bit um, complicated deciding who's Jewish. Um, I will just let you know that um, certainly in America, the largest, most popular form of Judaism is reform Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so, so for whatever that's worth. And, and part of that definition, part of the difference in the various forms is, is how we define who's Jewish. But Israel has always had the law of the return that if you were Jewish, you, you, you could not be denied admittance to Israel. There are some complications to that. Um, but, but part of that is that um, if you're somebody that, that, um, that doesn't have any other place to go, you might decide that returning to Israel was a, was a good thing. Um, and of course, there, there are exceptions to that. For example, um, Meyer Lansky was, uh, did, did move to Israel, but then he was sent back to the United States, if, you know, Meyer Lansky being, being one of the founders of, of the syndicate. Um, uh, you know, so I, an interesting story for you, Jeff. Um, I was on a, um, another um, a presentation with, uh, with a young um, uh, African-American streamer also. And, um, and we, were, we were talking about, um, about identity about, um, you know, and, and I, I said to him, and I, and I say this at the beginning of, of every one of my, uh, my classes, um, I was once accused of um, trying to be famous by proxy, right, uh, by somehow saying that, you know, that, that I have relations that, that I, you know, and I, I always explain this to the class, if you want to claim Albert Einstein, please feel free to claim him. Absolutely, Einstein was Jewish, no question. If you want to claim Sigmund Freud, sure, absolutely. But if you're going to claim them and say that, that that's part of your extended family, 
then you also end up with Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein. And those might not be the ones that you care to brag about. And the same thing is true. The same thing is true for, for African-Americans, right? Um, if you want to say, you know, Martin Luther King and, uh, and the late uh, John Lewis, you know, are, are paragons of yours, well, that's great. But you also get the baggage of Louis Farrakhan, right? And, and if there's one lesson to learn from that, it's that um, people are people. Absolutely. And, and see, that's, that's a wonderful point. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm so glad you brought that up too, because that's one of the things and one of the problems when I look back at the way I used to think when I was involved in, in white nationalism, and I know the way that most people think that are involved in that, and a lot of people that are involved in black nationalism or, or um, various other forms of, of extremism, is you paint the world, you see the world through these rose-colored glasses where you are painting large groups of people or as, as one. So it's, it's like in the movement, for example, we would say, well, the Jews are bad because they did this or that, but you can't, you can't paint anybody with the broad brush, any group of people, because it doesn't work like that. Just as you mentioned, you know, I mean, there's wonderful Jewish people, there's wonderful black people, there's wonderful white people. You know, the United States was founded on religious freedoms. There was so many people that that came here to this country because they were being persecuted in other places, Jewish people, uh, different forms of Christianity, the Quakers, yep. uh, later on the Mormons, you know, there was so many different, different people. And, and you can't, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that really encompasses what we're trying to do here and, and uh, what we're trying to, you know, the, the public that we're trying to reach is that you can't paint people or entire groups of people with this broad brush. Sure. Uh, you know, one, one could say, well, for, and I know I use this example quite a bit, like Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, he was a white guy, you know, does that mean all white guys are serial killers, mass right. murderers, cannibals? You know, it's, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense, but that's how, when people get involved in extremism, they get this closed, narrow-minded view. And it's so easy to, to uh, paint entire groups of people like that. And it's not accurate. It, it just doesn't even, it's not even based in accuracy. The, the, the other part that goes with it, and um, I'm going to offer you one of my, my favorite quotes of all time, but the other part with it is that um, a lot of our concepts of race are, um, are kind of flawed. And when I say that, I mean um, that just don't stand up to science. Um, you know, certainly uh, the Nazis and people like uh, Joseph Mengele um, rewrote their own science stuff because the real stuff just, just didn't agree with them, you know. Um, uh, but um, here's, here's the thing for you. First of all, I have, I, even though I've been teaching about it for, for literally decades, um, I have never been to, to Israel. I was supposed to. I won a, a, a scholarship as, as a teacher. I was supposed to go there. At that time, I was having back problems, and I, I just decided that my health didn't allow me, and I, I allowed that, that opportunity to pass. Maybe when I get done with, with my working career, maybe I'm going to take some time and, and go there. But, but the geography of, of, of uh, the modern state of Israel, you know, what used to be Palestine, is pretty interesting. So there's, there's a, a kind of curve of the Mediterranean, and that's where it is. Well, when you go inland from there, you can't go very far. Um, it's not a, not a big country before you come into, into mountain ranges. And if you know your New Testament, you know, you start talking about the, the wilderness where, where John the Baptist was, where, where, you know, where Jesus preached Sermon on the Mount. Um, <clears throat> by, by the way, um, 
by the way, uh, a young man um, that I, I used to um, work out with and, and also debate with um, said to me once that I quote scripture more than any person he's ever met and his father was a minister. Um, and I, uh, I said, you know, you use the tools that, that God gave you. So, so there you go on that. Um, but if you, if you look at that land, that, the reason that that land in, in, in ancient, ancient times was so important is it was the connecting area between the two largest empires of that time, Egypt and what was, you know, Sumeria, Assyria, the Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers that, that was up there. Mm -hmm. And so there were these caravans that were, were going through there. And you only had two ways that you could go. You either, either went by boat, and that was kind of perilous because remember, compasses hadn't been invented. So, you know, if the storm comes up, you don't know which way north is, you know, after that. So, so, so you could either do that or go through this land route. And if you went through the land route, you had caravans of stuff going through there. Well, one of the kinds of stuff that ancient Egypt had was slaves from the Sudan, from, from Africa. So this was a, a slave route. It wasn't, it wasn't anything compared to American slavery, which really took you know, slavery to, to a whole nother level, but there were slave routes. If you're uh, any kind of student of, uh, of human behavior, you know that um, slaves were male and female and um, one might guess that there was some, some mixing of blood going along the way. Um, that said, and I said I was going to give, share with you my favorite quote, this is a thing that you really need to, to have a little bit of biblical knowledge, but, but I guess everybody knows, you know, Adam is supposed to be the, the first man, right? I mean, that's, you know, Garden of Eden, Adam is supposed to be the first man. And then the, the flood comes later on, and, and only Noah and his family survive and they rebuild it. So this quote comes from Mark Twain. He says, I come from a long and distinguished family. Our roots go all the way back to Adam, but usually we just stop at Noah. And the, the kind of point about that is that um, if, if you do any of the ancestry studies, and I'm not talking about the genetic stuff, but if you go back and you take a look at it, um, everybody that's alive today has some trace of Genghis Khan's blood in them. I mean, that, that's, just the way, that's just the way things work. You have four children, they have eight children, and pretty soon, you know, as you get into, into some pretty big numbers, you know, everybody's, everybody's related to everybody else. And, and, I, and I just tell people that. Um, the, the other thing that I always say on a, on a very real level, if we ever find alien life forms, if we ever find little green men with, with pseudopods and stuff, you know what uh, that's going to end? That's going to end racism for us. And we will, we will have alien discrimination. Yep. <laughs> no, that's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I've said that so many times too. You know, you know we have uh, – people are so caught up over these differences like uh, color, religion, these, these ridiculous biases. But if the aliens landed next week – and we're attacking the earth, everybody would come together to fight the aliens. So, I mean, you, you know, and just, just as you yep. said, I really like how you put it because it was very eloquent, but uh, we all really came from the same place and we're all in, in, a, in a simplistic way, we're all cousins in that, in that sense and we're all part of greater humanity. So uh, breaking things down and into, into this tribalism and, and 
what we have going on today where people are uh, wanting just to uplift one group of people over another and, and things like that. It doesn't make a lot of sense because really we're all, we're all the same family. We're all part of the human race and, and uh, you know, these slight differences over religion. or And, and, and if, if you think about the words you just used, Jeff, and that, that we, 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 we say, and it, we, we, you know, we think these things, but then we move away from it. You just use the term human race, yeah. implying that there is a, a single race. Well, I donated blood today, and I was, I was telling you about that before. Um, I, I like to refer to it at my age as, um, as having an oil change. <laughs> um, um, but this was my 103rd blood donation. So um, at, at Red Cross, they, they always tell me, um, oh, you saved, you know, that you multiplied by three, you saved 309 lives. And I always respond to them saying, yeah, 308 people that I like and that one guy. but but seriously i don't know who's getting my blood right and and i don't really care i i don't know if it's i don't know if it's a blood donation going to a a protester in in portland or going to one of the the proud boys um in michigan and you know i i don't know and i don't care um the guy in the proud boys might be a little bit skittish about that uh (laughs) Um, everything was okay. You know, the surgery was a success, but he did find uh, afterwards he had this craving for, for corned beef on rye with a little bit of mustard that he just couldn't explain. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but that's, that's, that's really the, the way it is. Um, I'll also tell, you, also tell you a couple of other things. Um, we tend to view the world on a, on a daily basis as static, and it's not. It's, it's changing. It's changing all the time. Um, and we really don't, don't even know what that changes. So um, work from home, WFH. So I, I, I'm head of business development for a computer game company. My company is 100% distributed, and we, we always were. Um, we hire people regardless of where they live, and there are some funny consequences to that. Um, our, uh, the furthest distance between any two developers, our multiplayer guru is based out of New Zealand. And our QA manager is based out of Stockholm, Sweden. Their times actually align pretty much, except they're off by a day. I always say, Edward's from our future. He just won't give me any stock tips. I, you know, exactly. uh, not, even, not even a buy Tesla. I mean, you know, not a word from him. So... Um, but, but our, our company is completely distributed that way. And I think a lot of companies are going to move to that model. I have, I have told people um, it's such an advantage for people you know, raising kids, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you, you don't have to, you have to worry about getting to the office. And then in terms of the talent pool, um, if you say you hire the best of the best, but everybody's got to work out of San Francisco or New York or Detroit or, you know, Ann Arbor or wherever, um, then you're not really hiring the best of the best. You're hiring the best people in that zip code, right? Yeah. And, and we hire the best. Um, that said, um, I've had to uh, fill out, you know, we, we don't do like work for the federal government, but we do work with some large companies. And every once in a while, they will send, um, their HR department will send out a, you know, vendor survey um, for us to go on. Beats the hell out of me. I know his IP address. I don't know what color he is. 
Right. You know, I, I, I literally, I, I literally don't. Um, I, I have, uh, I have a developer in, in Germany um, who is, is kind of shy. Um, he's a fantastic developer, but he's not exactly what you would call your know, communicator. I've never even seen his picture. And by the way, I'm probably wrong and off base, and it's you know I'm, I'm, it's probably you know an old man thing that I keep on saying he, because it's it's easy to do because when you're not there face to face with the person all the time, you might talk to them on the phone, you talk to them through email. I know um, there's a couple of different things online that I'm on, and you get into the different chat rooms, and the one person that I'm on with there, it's like they automatically assume everybody's probably a guy because most gamers are guys. Yep. And then lo and behold, there's like maybe five or six of us women in there. And then they're like, Oh wait, sorry. You know, didn't want to offend. It's like, dude, we're online. <laughs> so it's like, what do you, what do you expect? I mean, you can't um, get offended easily. That's for sure. <laughs> just, just on that. Um, whenever somebody says to me, I, I didn't mean to offend. I, uh, I always say the same thing back to them. Um, hey, if you're comfortable with your racism, I'm comfortable with it. If you're comfortable <laughs> with your sexism, we're all good. Um, right. But, but, you know, but, but, but again, I mean, this gets us back to the, the original point. Um, first of all, there was, there was an article today um, that came out that was talking about, uh, about girls in gaming. That, that uh, you know, 51% were men and 49% were girls, not women, <laughs> um, were girls. And um, then managed to use the word ladies in an article. There's a comedian, Dimitri Martin, one of my, my favorite comedians. He said, any sentence, no matter how innocent, can be made to sound creepy. If you add the word ladies to the end of it, wouldn't you agree, ladies? You know? <laughs> and, and, and I just sat there and I looked at that and I go, didn't anybody proofread this before, <laughs> before this went out? So, but, but there you go. Um, you know, again, Jeff, a lot of our our um, our core beliefs um, are um, are based on stuff that's just um, that's just false. So, um, you know, first of all, uh, the idea that anyone um, from two thousand, four thousand years ago, that any line of people came forward without mixing with somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that, that's it in a nutshell. And, and uh, you know, if, if we could uh, get that through to people, I think we'd have a lot less racism and a lot less uh, hate and bias and things like that. I mean, there's really so few real differences when we get down to it. You know, we all have the basic same innate desires and, and needs and, and things like that, that uh, some of these things that people get tripped up on. I mean, I, yeah. I asked myself that over and over again all, all the time, you know, like, man, why did, why did it take so long to, to realize these truths? And sometimes I think a lot of it has to do with dialogue and getting to know other people and, and um, experiencing other cultures and other and other dynamics like that that a lot of people don't do a lot of people shelter themselves and it's the whole concept of the organization that we started beyond barriers is, is yeah. that 
you have this barrier in your mind that you've, you've set it up yourself and you're not giving yourself the opportunity to understand other cultures. You're just going, okay, well, I heard this about these people and they must all be bad. Or, or is there and, a, it's, it's the word all. And, and again, mm -hmm. we, uh, we evolved a term. Um, the origins of it are actually you know, out of the New Testament, but um, we evolved a term collective guilt, mm -hmm. right? That something happened 2000 years ago. And I mean, I literally remember, you know, so, so I grew up in the Bronx. I, you know, I lived out in Michigan for, for half my life. Um, but, but the first half I lived, I lived in New York and I, I, was, I was a Bronx boy. And I remember um, my, my friends who were, who were mostly Irish Catholic in the, in the early days being so excited that came out and, they, and they, they were you know grabbing me and jumping up and down and saying, the Pope said you didn't kill Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Which was not something that, that frankly, I had ever lost a, a minute of sleep over. But, but I'm glad to know that, 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 I, that, I, that I, I got out from that. Um, I, you know, I, I, that, that, the concept of, of collective guilt, the concept of everybody's the same. So when we were talking about, about the, the men from space coming in, that if, if, if they landed, that we would be, you know, xenophobic against them rather than each other. I'm going to tell you, 48 hours after the men from space showed up, whatever they looked at, and by the way, men or women from space um, <laughs> showed, showed up, um, that, that some restaurant would have a sign in it that said, aliens not allowed. Yep. yep. Okay. And that 48 hours after that, um, you know, somebody would be standing outside the restaurant with a shirt that said, alien lives matter. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, that, that is, that is a nature that, that we look at people. So again, I, I, I try to talk to as many people as, as I can. Um, I had a discussion, this was a, a number of years ago, but I had a discussion with uh, a young African American woman who absolutely believed that white Europeans, particularly white European men had invented genocide. That that was that was absolutely her her, her conviction, and that, that all racial hatred you know came from from those people. And I, I got you know I, I got I got her point you know, but 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 I asked her how much she knew about African history. Now, how much do you know about your own history? And I'm not even talking about about you know what happened thousands of years ago. The Hutus and the Tutsis lived in the same villages. They, they lived side by side in, in Rwanda for all of these years, um, never a particular conflict. And then um, a war began spreading into the region and, and for reasons that are obscure to us, but that were valid to, to the people there, the Hutus began killing the Tutsis. And it was, it was as terrible a racial conflict as, as you could have. First of all, many people, um, didn't understand it as being a, a racial conflict or, or even, you know, ethnic cleansing because to us in America, certainly to people in Europe, you can't tell the difference between a Hutu and a Tutsi. Right. You wouldn't, right. you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that, but that was significant to them. Well, in that um, particular genocide, <clears throat> you know, they, the Hutus had started the rumor that the Tutsis were cannibals and that they were an yep. evil race, specifically that their race was evil. And uh, they passed out machetes. Uh, uh, they got machetes out there. And, and there was, I think, what, almost a million that were uh, butchered. Uh, and, Within and, 100 days. 
the, the, the amazing thing about that, Jeff, the amazing thing about that, let's, let's not be too depressed, is, is, is how they were mo able to move forward with peace and that they, they actually have, have trials going in, in villages where Hutus will acknowledge their, their guilt in what they did, will, will fess up to their crimes and be exonerated for that, that, that they will apologize and that that, you know, apology is, is accepted and they're able to move forward in that. But that's not the only case of it. Um, the newest nation in the world is <clears throat> South Sudan. South Sudan broke off from Sudan. Um, all of the people are the same race, but the ones in the north are Muslim, the ones in the south are animist. And so they, you know, after, the, after the, this terrible campaign of, of, of mass rapes and, and genocide, they split off into this other country, a problem solved, right? Except the vice president of, of South Sudan and the president of South Sudan were for two tribes and now they're engaged in a civil war. And again, that's not necessarily a quality of Africa or, I mean, if you look at European history, we had much the same thing with, yep. within there, um, you know, uh, but it's a quality of people that if there are three people, the last three people in the world, mm -hmm. it won't be long before two of them say to the other, I hate that guy. Mm -hmm. And he's different kind of than us. Right? He's yeah. different than us somehow. And um, that's the hard thing because, you know, just as humans mm -hmm. in general, a lot of times, like, you know, put aside race, put aside, you know, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, you know, all of that, you know, we tend to forget that, you know, like you said, you, 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 uh, gave blood. Well, we all have the same blood. I don't care if it's Jewish, if it's African American, if it's white, if it's black, yellow, whatever. We the only, all the only, take the, only, the same kinds of blood. The only so, difference is, is, you know, what food you crave after you get a transfusion. That's, that's, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we tend to forget a lot. Um, I know I saw yeah. a quote the other day about how, um, let's see, what was it? How history repeats itself because yeah. humanity constantly wants to rewrite and forget the mistakes and the horrors that exist instead of learning from it and doing better. And that's something that we see here, like with everything, the genocides, it happens in all different races, all different cultures, all different societies. And a lot of it stems from, you know what? I don't like you, so I'm going to find a reason, or I'm ignorant, and it's fear-based, and you, you work off of the fear versus saying, hey, why is this happening, and what can we do to change it, and, not and, ignore it? And a lot of the secrets to, to what, we, what we can do to change is to understand how we got here, and not be, and not be casual, and not, and not talk about, you know, well, this is the way it's, it's always been. Um, you know, for, for many people, um, finding out about 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the destruction of Black Wall Street was just an, an, an epiphany. It was just something that, that and it, it's interesting because, you know, people that are living there today, African-Americans that are living there, didn't know that that happened 99 years ago, that, that where they, you know, were, was there. Um, if you want to prevent the repetition of the mistakes of the past. You have to acknowledge the mistakes of the past. And 
and I borrow this from, from religion, but it is not necessarily only a religious concept. If you can't admit that you made a mistake, if you have to live in denial that no, I, you know, the, then you can never gain forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You can never, um, you, you, you can never get to that next point. You're going to carry that burden with you for, for all your life. And, um, can can I use a, a a little bit of strong language? It's it's not much of a not Go not too it. much. Go ahead. Um, um, hope this won't offend anyone. I I tell people all the time, particularly people that I work with, that um, I'm an asshole. I I I I just am, and I was one yesterday, and I will probably be one tomorrow. But my goal is to be a little bit less of an asshole today than I was yesterday and to be a, a, a little bit better, just not to repeat the same mistakes, not to get stuck in, in where, I, where I was and to be able to move forward from there. And a, a big part of that is um, the ability to say I was wrong and then to follow that up with, and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, that, that was really bravo on that. And, and that was really eloquent and well-spoken. And, and I think, you know, right now, uh, one of the things that we're seeing a lot of in society with this uh, cancel culture is yeah. that, uh, you know, when someone says something or does something wrong, they just need to be canceled and, and you, you never want to hear from them again. And that, that doesn't help. I, I like that you brought up the, the race and reconciliation commissions. Yeah. I, I that's what they're called in different parts of the world. Yeah. They have it in Cambodia. They have it in, in Africa and South Africa as well. Um, and a lot of different places. And I think those are, are fantastic things. I think they help uh, people to heal. They help those nations to heal and move forward. And uh, we all, we all have made, mistakes and I don't uh, think the cancel culture thing is, is healthy I don't think it's a good a good thing and and um, I think in closing uh, if you if either of you have thoughts on that and then uh, I, I'll give you I'll give you one Jeff and it's it's a short one um, they never played baseball they didn't learn about this three strike rule in in, in in today's world we only get one strike and then you're out right That's and, I keep on thinking of, uh, of the mistakes that I have made um, in my life. Um, I, I, will, I will say that, that um, I'm, I'm pretty pleased when I look at, at my two children who, who turned into just phenomenal human beings. Um, uh, you know, I, I look at, 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 at some of the, the things I've been able to do in business and, and, you know, some of the successes and all of that's great. Um, but I got there making mistakes and, and I, I'm just really glad that people forgave me for my mistakes as in the hope that I would forgive them for theirs. So. Now, likewise, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something about uh, forgiveness and, and uh, making mistakes. Uh, those that know my history, I've made quite a few mistakes. And, and uh, one thing I can say about the Jewish people is I was really surprised the first time I went into a synagogue since after I was out of the movement and the love and the forgiveness and the compassion and the empathy of the people there was, I was not, I always, I always go into situations expecting a worst case scenario. And uh, the, the outpouring of kindness there was something I had never experienced before. And, and I just, I want to learn from that and go forward with it and give back as much as I can uh, to society in general and, and uh, do well. And I think anybody can do that. And I, I think uh, you stated it as, as eloquently as, as, as anyone. 
Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for this um, parting thought. Um, we began by talking about uh, the lives that were lost at the, the Tree of Life Synagogue. And again, it was part of Kamau's show, um, the funerals for those, for those that lost their lives um, in the Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh were paid for by the Islamic Center that, that is their neighbor. And then um, after the, the Christchurch mosque shooting, the synagogue did a GoFundMe and, and raised money um, hopefully, it's great that we do that in our in our saddest, most desperate times. Hopefully, we can we can have that kind of togetherness without the loss of life. But um, that's probably what's what's really important. Again, thank you guys so much for for this opportunity. Thank you so Thanks much for coming on, Larry. It's a great honor to have you, and and that's about as as good of a closing statement I think as as we can have that. It's uh, phenomenal. I think a lot of people don't know that, um, but that, that solidarity between especially uh, Jews and, and Muslims is fantastic. Acacia, do you have anything to close out? No, I think you both said it perfectly. You know, the biggest thing, you know, right now it's very easy to get overwhelmed with all of the negativity that's going on and the violence that's going on on all sides, really. And yeah. I don't care what race, religion, whatever you are, you know, there's, we, we see it happening all over. And the biggest thing I know, at least for me, and I think, you know, for a lot of people is that we have to remember that we need to come together in times of peace and in times of trial and tragedy, because if we can't come together in times, if we only come together in times of tragedy, yep. then it, there's going to be a lot of, to to a lot of funerals. Yeah, that's if, exactly yeah. it. That's yeah. exactly it. So, yeah, that's my closing thoughts. You know, we're all Jeff, in this together. Jeff, thank you for wearing your Made in Detroit uh, shirt. Thank you very much for that. I just want to give a shout out to all my peeps in the 313. So, all right. heart goes out to <laughs> you guys. That's awesome. Right. Cheers, everybody.